Well, welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Mitch. And I'm DM Neil, aka Joe Moneyak. Today I'm excited. Our guest for today is James Eck, otherwise known, especially for those of you who are on our forums, as Rorik. He's here to talk about something very near and dear to his heart, puzzles. This is going to be a fantastic episode where we're going to really be able to glean from his wisdom because uh, James is super, super talented when it comes to puzzles. I believe, Neil, he created a whole labyrinth, right, on the forums that, it, like, with a visual representation and everything. Yeah, it was over on his own blog, but the, I mean, if you've heard through through the years, the absolute gushing about the rotating labyrinth, it is, I mean, the number of permutations of the labyrinth is some astronomical number, I think, in the millions that someone did, <laughs> because you have all these, Crazy. like, large rotating sections, smaller rotating sections, and even smaller rotating sections inside of that, and you can buy that, you can build that, you can run that, uh, and you can find all of that on his website. That sounds like a DM's dream and a player's nightmare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, we we brought him in. And speaking of awesome things that he's created, if you are a Patreon supporter, Gold Dragon or higher, you can head over and check out something new and interesting that Rorik has created all about puzzles and helping you make them. But before we jump into this awesome discussion with Rorik, Neil, we have some five-star reviews. And the first one comes from Unique Exemplar, entitled DM Fantastic. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> Everyone on this show is great. The energy, insight, and creativity are infectious. I've gotten so much inspiration from DM's block, and I keep going back to find more. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Unique Exemplar, for that awesome review. Yeah, thanks so much. Our next one comes from DM equals Dragon Master and is entitled what creativity craves five stars i was looking for a podcast to help me start building my own homebrew world to set campaigns in and i found this it always feels like a hit or miss when you decide to listen to a new podcast and i'm happy to say that this one is a hit i am a new dm and i feel like the well of creativity dries up a lot all I need to do is re-listen to one of these episodes, and then in parentheses, he writes, oh. listen, listen to them all in a month. I don't know how you do did that, DM equals Dragon Master, but wow. Anyway, keeps going. And the well is replenished. The ideas and discussions these guys have are amazing for any DM. Keep it up, guys. Thank you, DM dra equals Dragon Master, and you yes. keep it up. Super excited hear that we can help you uh, with replenishing that well with filling it back up again and giving you ideas for your game hopefully this episode does that very same thing mitch what time is it though it is time neil for us to head to the meat i'm starving we ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat back on the menu, boys. So today on the meat, we are going to be talking about a puzzling topic. I feel like I had to say that dad joke, but today we have a very special, not guest, kind of guest. I don't know. 
James, you're too involved to be a, a guest. So you're, you're co-hosting with us today. And it is James Eck, aka Rourke, the amazing mind behind Mindweave RPG. And for longtime listeners, you would know it as the home of the rotating labyrinth where Morgan Jenkins and I absolutely lost our minds. <laughs> so James, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on. And, and the rotating labyrinth and, and you and Morgan Jenkins praise for it is the reason I came back into RPGs in a big way. I started to, to kind of fade away. That's awesome. And then I heard that and I went, oh, I got to get back in. <laughs> well, it's we probably also, as ridiculous as we were, probably tried to hide how much more ridiculous we actually <laughs> were because we literally spent hours in that 3D representation just <laughs> running around on a Google Hangout call separately running through it. I'm pretty sure there's a bonus episode for the patrons, right? Where it's yeah, just like an hour-long recording of yes. you and Morgan. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so some of our listeners who have especially been with us for a while and are on our forums might recognize the name Rorik, uh, but James... Let's give them a little bit more insight and the rest of our listeners some insight. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like Neil says, long walks on the beach, whatever it is that you would like to tell us about. <laughs> well, I'm an electrical engineer by day. I design electrical hardware for radar. And so having a job as fun as that, I need the best of all hobbies to fill the rest of my time. And so the rest of that time is preparing to be a game master, game mastering, writing RPG content playing RPGs as much as I can. And and ever since Neil and, and Morgan Jenkins brought me back into, into this world, uh, it has completely consumed my life. I've converted and indoctrinated my, my two little girls, three and five, <gasps> yes. into the game already. They call it Dungeons and & Dragons and & Daughters. Shout out to, oh, that's perfect. to the network. And I run a weekly game for the neighborhood kids. And if I can just convert my wife, I'll be able to dive in completely forever and ever. I've got <laughs> all of her her three brothers are in already. And if I can just get her mom, maybe maybe we'll be all the way there. Okay. that's The key is someone else doing it for you. Because I tried for the longest time. And then one of my wife's coworkers was interested. And so then it, after that, it was her, two of her coworkers, and one of my longtime friends in a game that we run on occasion. So you gotta you gotta convince other people to convince her. That's the secret. Okay. But I'll tell you, on my birthday, she ran an ad hoc system that she'd made up in her head, game mastered, and and it was really fun. It was like we went back to our high school, and and there were demons who had taken over the high school, and a bunch of puzzles. And she did a great job. And it's the only time she's done it. Maybe she'll never do it again. But but she's totally a natural. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So. We already brought up Mindweave RPG. Is there anything you're working on that you want to tell the listeners about to go check out there? Yeah, so Mindweave RPG is a blog that I started when I thought I wanted to design a game system. But it ended up being far too complicated, and I backed off from that. And so now it's it's got weekly 5th edition content. It's got all the play reports for the games I'm playing in. Right now, I'm mostly working. I'm almost done with a module I call Sentient Skies. Uh, it's kind of a aliens invade your fantasy world <laughs> module it's got the works it's got the spells and the feats and the class archetypes and monsters and, and all the things you want it's got a ship combat system maybe the hardest part was getting the ship combat system to feel like a, a space dogfight like in in star wars or 
any of these sci-fi things without, while still allowing everyone in the party to participate without violating kind of the simple elegance of 5e, right? But I think I, I struck a pretty good balance there. I'm excited. And by the time this, this podcast comes out, that should be available on DriveThruRPG, Sentient Skies. And if, unless I screw something up, maybe also a, a print option for that. Awesome. I would say we'll have links in the show notes if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Now, it's, it's not Spelljammer. I wish it was Spelljammer. Um, but, but hopefully it'll serve as a way to, to transition people's worlds into some, something more like Spelljammer or into Spelljammer if they ever give it to us. Convince them. Tell them to give us Spelljammer. They, I hear it's coming. Yeah. I hear it's coming. Yep. <laughs> that would be good news. All right, James, as always, we do have a special surprise question for you. This question comes from DM Exitium. Uh, DM Exitium asks, Thanos snaps his fingers at the end of Infinity War. Who dies in your D&D campaign? Ooh, my biggest world, my most well-developed world is the, the Haven world where the teenagers from the neighborhood play. So who dies in that campaign? I think Dargos dies. Dargos is the gnome leader that they're the most friendly with and that gives them most of the information into what, what's going on. And so that loses them all their contact in, uh, in stopping the Aramak from raising Lueth Thraoid. And, and that, that would crowbar their intentions pretty hard. As far as players, they have so many characters I could kill off. <laughs> each, each player has potentially three or four characters. So like, Maybe I probably kill off Virtus. He's getting high enough level that he's making trouble. Rovert's got to live because he's transitioning into being a villain. But maybe I kill, uh, maybe I kill his henchman, the centaur, uh, Dohasen, and maybe even his brother, Donahagawa. Uh, there's lots of leaders in their group that I could kill. They'd love it if I killed uh, Jacob Farrow. He's kind of their rival adventurer. <laughs> well, that means that he can't die, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to do that. That's that's fantastic. So that in that campaign they have multiple characters, so like they could feel that pain of their character turning to dust and fading away, but still as players have characters to go. Okay, well now we've got we've got the team that's left, and we need to fix this. We need to figure out how to, if yeah. we can, save our companions. Yeah, I definitely hit at least one character from each player. Almost every player has at least their first character that they decided they didn't want to play anymore. And, and then and you said the gnome character was... What's their main contact? And what was and his so, name? Uh, Dargos. Now I'm just thinking of like him like as a gnome version of Nick Fury. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. I guess if Nick Fury was Russian... <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, DMXATM, for that question, and thank you, James, for that answer. Well, let's get into what we came to talk here today about. I was telling you guys before we jumped into recording, I'm really excited about this topic and this episode because for me as a dungeon master, I think puzzles is one of the places that I am the weakest at. But I still love puzzles, and I like presenting them as a DM. I feel like it's such a good staple of a D&D campaign and James uh you you know puzzles quite well so I know me and Neil Neil you, 
I think you put it, you're taking us to class, right? Like this is, this is totally what this is going to be. And we're super excited uh, to learn uh, from you today, James. So let's, uh, let's jump into talking about puzzles and riddles. Yeah. Well, so whenever, whenever I want to talk about uh, a topic, especially in RPGs and, and games in general, I look at one of the first theoretical developments that people did on game design was called the MDA framework, and that's mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics. So the mechanics of the game are just kind of the numbers that you crunch, right? And so mechanics in, in D&D or any other RPG are going to be the systems that come in your core book and, and your dice rolls, right? And that's going to make up the mechanics. And so those are given to us. We don't have to design that part. The dynamics are the situations you get into, right? So so the way those mechanics come together to form an experience. So if you're making a dexterity saving throw because a fireball went off, right? That's a dynamic that that is happening, right? And, and you make the roll and the dynamic is the experience of surviving that fireball or not surviving that fireball. And the aesthetic is the way all of those dynamics, all those scenarios that you get into and, and that happen to you, the way those come together to give you the experience of enjoyment in the game. So they have a bunch of core aesthetics that they talk about a lot. And re- related to RPGs, there's kind of six that I've, I've grabbed as, as the ones that most people play RPGs, tabletop RPGs, to experience. And so those are fantasy, which is the desire to, to experience being someone else. The, the game is, is make-believe, be in another world, be another person. And so your players who, who are really concerned with immersion and maybe get frustrated when people are, are talking about things outside the game, those are going to be your fantasy players. Then there's narrative, which is where you want to experience the game as, as a story. So the people who are really interested in finding out what's going to happen and, and knowing that there's a story behind what's going on, those are going to be your narrative so and then expression expression's one that I think is the easiest to spot because when your player is coming to the table expecting ex- an expression experience, they bring a lot to the table, right? They might bring a drawing of their character. They might uh, like Sojin from the the Isles or the the Voyage across the Unending Sea. They might write a journal, right, of of all the things they're doing. Those are people who are looking for expression, right? They want to really get into their character, and they're going to to write an extensive backstory or come with a voice prepared or with a drawing that, that tells you that they, and, and so those are all really obvious hints that they intend to express themselves through that character. Um, discovery, you know, these players, when, when you see a player who really wants to know more about the world, right? When you start talking about the lore, they're paying a lot of attention. Discovery players want to explore the world and, and learn new things in the world. And then challenge is a common one. There's always challenge. Whenever there's there's a battle or a chance of, of failure, there's challenge. So your challenge junkies are going to be the players who are really looking to to get into these situations that are challenging, right? Where, where they start to really engage with the game when they see that there's there's some chance of failure. And then I think anybody who comes to the table not looking for fellowship is kind of crazy, right? Because they could get these things from from a computer game if they're not looking for a fellowship. And so fellowship is that desire to come to the game to, to spend time with other people and, and work together and, and have the experience of, of kind of a social game. I like to look at topics based on these aesthetics. And so I think it's valuable to think about puzzles in terms of how players who come for these different aesthetics experience puzzles. Any thoughts on that? Who's going? I'm Go going. Neil. I'm still processing. Oh, well, I think it. Yeah, I think. 
<laughs> you you've reframeworked Mitch's brain. Give you got to give him a moment. So I think one of I think it's really important because you know, one of the things that we talked about before James, you know, because there was a lot of just at least a decent amount of discussion before starting this topic because I feel like it is a little bit of a polarizing topic in that either people tend to really like puzzles or not like that there's not there's not like this neutral middle ground of like no i'm so so on puzzles like it's much less common so figuring out exactly how to tailor them to specific types of players is very important because you also need to you know know your players because you could have a whole table to challenge players the puzzle that you present for that table then needs to specifically hit on that type of you know on that type of player at your table yeah and and usually the people at your table are going to be all different right maybe maybe you can get people who are the same but you're usually going to have a lot of diversity as far as the their aesthetics that they enjoy at the table and that's okay because while certain aesthetics aren't going to enjoy puzzles as much when you're playing a game you want there to be lows right you want there to be times when you're not as engaged with the game because otherwise you burn out right you're if you're high all the time on this game then, then you can't keep going. And so you want those lows so you can, can kind of uh, have this, this nice pacing curve where they engage and then they can back off and they engage and back off. And so puzzles might be a good time even for players who don't like puzzles to back off. But the fact that it's so stratified that some people just hate puzzles means that it's causing them to back off too far or maybe for too long and it's making the experience really bad for them. So part of what I want to talk about is is the idea that you can have this this time when when a player who doesn't like puzzles is backed out, but you don't want it to ruin their experience for the whole night, right? You want it to be kind of a cool off period before you bring them back in. As you were kind of talking about the different approaches, I was kind of in my mind thinking about my players in my home game and trying to like, yeah, this guy fits here, he fits here, like... And some of them are obviously a mix of either two or three or or all of them to some degree. But it is interesting thinking along the lines of puzzles uh, because definitely when looking at those different types of approaches, I think that there is a lot to be considered with the type of puzzle that you present to them. The first thing that I thought about was the the first approach that you talked about was the fantasy, like getting out of the world that you're, you know, that we live in and getting into a fantasy world and putting yourself into the, the character that you're playing totally, you know, that, that break from reality. And I know in my own game, I present like puzzles that really, it has nothing to do with the, the character, but it turns out to be more of a, all right, players, here's a puzzle for you to, to figure out like, and then it just becomes my, rather than, the paladin character that Caleb is playing, it's Caleb figuring out that puzzle. And somebody like Caleb would be all into that. And then I see another person be like, yeah, like, I mean, this doesn't really have to do with my character. Like, and, and I've seen people throw out like, well, my character wouldn't be that great at this. So I'm just going to sit back and not participate. And I feel like that when you're losing that fantasy approach, like that might be a downfall to that. But then also that challenge aspect and seeing, I've definitely seen players who fit into that. That's what they're looking for is a good challenge. Seeing them like really go after those puzzles if they're introduced. But then I've had puzzles that are like interactive with their characters and with the world. And that I've seen more of a buy-in from all the players around the table when it's like a, 
D and D battle grid that places that you step. You need to remember certain things because it will affect your character. I've seen more of a positive reaction because it's like, no, this this is something that my character is reacting to in the moment. Absolutely. And that's the most common complaint you see against puzzles, right? Is that it's not my character solving it, it's me solving it. And so when I see that, well, it doesn't resonate with me. I'm not particularly a fantasy player. But when I see that, I go, well, that's it, right? They're, they're a fantasy player. And, and so they have a reasonable complaint that they're in the game for their character to do things and you're asking them to do something. But you're absolutely right. The, the challenge players are completely on the other side. They want to be the one solving the puzzle. They don't care if their character is the one solving the puzzle. They want to be challenged personally, right? And you can see it because, like, those players, when you put a puzzle down on the table, they're rubbing their, yeah, they're rubbing their hands <laughs> together. Yes. And you can see the ones that are like, it, uh, my character's not interested. All right. <laughs> yeah. And so since we have both types of players at our table, you want the puzzles, right? Because the puzzles are going to really be core to the experience of those challenge players, but you don't want them to be a terrible experience for the fantasy players either. And so you brought up some good points there that, that the fantasy player might feel alienated by the puzzle if it doesn't feel like it fits in the world, right? And so having those tiles on the floor that, that can help like props and, and have it fit into the dungeon and, and realistically be part of, of this world that they're experiencing in their fantasy helps them, even if they don't care about solving the puzzle, it helps them watch the puzzle happen without feeling like their immersion was broken completely. I would say I like the idea of, of props because it reminded me of a story that Rich Howard had told me one time where basically the DM had set up this room you're know, very heavy with the heavy with props and scenery and things like that. And it's like, there's a puzzle in front of you. And they're like, okay, well, what do I see? And then the DM was like, you see what you see, you have everything before you to solve this issue. And so at the end of it, there were basically multiple levers. And then one of the three levers wasn't rusted or painted to look rusted like the other ones. So clearly that was the one that they had been using all the time. And, And so, you know, that idea of just building it into the world rather than feeling like something I stumbled on to in the Sunday paper. Um, Sunday paper for younger people listening is a thing. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And, and even then to help their character be more involved, maybe you give them an investigation check with, with some DC to notice that it's not this rusted handle, right? Because that then one of the handles isn't as rusted. Because maybe sitting at the table, they, they can't see that themselves, so they haven't noticed. And after a little while, you say, well, why don't you roll an investigation check? Or, yeah. Uh, so I recently had an, had an example of this that I probably wouldn't have noticed if we hadn't if I hadn't been thinking about this, this podcast coming up. Um, I had a player. I didn't even know he was a fantasy player. But we had this situation where they were on a, a ship that had crashed, in the, a flying ship that had crashed in the forest. And they were trying to perform this ritual on the ship. And the trees had grown around it and were, were about to tip the ship over and they really all they had to do was was make a few rolls and and stabilize the one person doing the ritual so they wouldn't have the ritual interrupted and this player revealed himself as a fantasy player because he was so into it and i realized that while it hadn't been intended to be a puzzle it had been this great puzzle experience for him because his character had he'd been able to live that fantasy and it was so vivid for him and so broadening what we think of as puzzles 
can also help us to find puzzles that that are going to help the the fantasy player because all he did was describe how his character was stabilizing the the person performing the ritual but that helped him engage with the puzzle while the other player flew around reinforcing the walls and and solving the the situation in a more challenging way so we have all these kind of set up i was i was wondering if we could kind of go through we we've done it a little bit with fantasy but also like na- like giving tips for the certain types of players and how to tailor puzzles to them. And so we did fantasy a little bit, like what's some of your tips and tricks, if you will, for narrative players. Narrative players are, I want to say simple, but on the other hand, it's, it's can be tough. Narrative players, I think mostly get, feel like their engagement curve goes too low. If things take a long time, right? They like things to move fast in the game so that they can get to the next part of the story. Right. And a puzzle might look like a waste of time to them if it's not advancing the story. So I like multi-part puzzles where you find a piece of the puzzle and you solve it a little bit and then and then you move on to some more story elements until you find the next piece. I like short puzzles that, that allow them to keep going because you don't want them to feel like they're being disappointed for a long period of time. Well, it sounds like, too, with the narrative, like those with a narrative approach, kind of like you're saying, this is the point where you really have to start getting a little deeper as a dungeon master and when you're introducing like a dungeon. Like when I first DM'd, it was just like, all right, throw a dungeon in there. What lives there? Uh, whatever. Throw some monsters in. But when you I'll really like dive table. into the... <laughs> well, yeah, but, but then you yeah. start to go, okay, but those early dungeons I made, they were cool. They were cool dungeon crawls, but they were just wacky and messed up. And why would that dragon be living there? And why would these creatures be living there and you like you start to go what is the purpose behind it what is it adding to my world does it make sense what is it adding to the story um and i think that's the same that you're saying with with narrative players and puzzles like all right did you just throw this puzzle at us because it's dungeons and dragons and we need a puzzle or is this important to the story and i really like that idea of like multiple puzzles that like each one is rewarding you some little thing, whether it's a, an artifact or a piece of an artifact that eventually is leading to like this mystery that's going to be revealed once you've figured out and sought out all of these puzzles. I think the narrative player, that's something that's going to speak a lot more to them. Absolutely. And narrative players are becoming increasingly common as the D&D community grows. I yep. think playing with my, I, I learned playing with my dad. And so we didn't, have you know a really solid narrative we were doing kind of wacky dungeon crawls and and i think that the newer generation of players narrative is a lot more common and so it's something to be looking out for i think one of the other easy ways for it like to tailor to a narrative narrative player is you know you need if if no other way you need to get through this to get to the next thing like that you know that not that that's the most elegant way it's the hammer <laughs> nail kind of way but it's like you have to do this to get to that so um the other one I'm, I'm really interested in is expressive players or expression players like how do you have them how do you tailor a puzzle to do that and i ask that and answer it both with both with something you've already said the idea you know and your player expressing themselves like expressing their character through wanting to stabilize this person because they're yeah. in this har- you know in this harrowing situation and so then that kind of comes out but are there other ideas you have for expression players um expression players can actually be really easy because 
when when an express when someone's really heavily like their primary aesthetic is expression, they heavily control when they want to engage, right? And so it it uh, it determine they they can determine their own challenge curve, right? They can decide. Oh, I'm going to engage with my character, and while my character would be really bad at puzzles, I'm going to have fun because my character is going to sit here and give bad suggestions, right? <laughs> or, or they they can uh, try to solve all the they can give all the clues that they find in their character voice, right? And so they can determine if they're going to withdraw a little bit and have a have a low in their engagement curve, or if they're going to try to make this more engaging for them by by coming in and and, and uh, Playing with playing as their character would play, right? Shenanigans or, or helping or or making suggestions that just talking a lot, right? You could have a character that they, they like to play their character is really talkative and that's that's part of their expression and maybe they can't think of anything, but they just keep talking the whole time and they won't stop and they interrupt everybody and they're trying to get something across and they just won't stop talking. And so they get to kind of choose when they're going to engage. The one thing you can do as a, a dungeon master to help craft the puzzle so that they have more options to engage is to have the solution be more open-ended so they can express themselves through the solution that they find, which, which was the case in this falling ship where his, his way to express himself was to find the solution where he helps with the ritual in the only way that his character would know how. You talked about expressive characters and you brought back the idea of DM Chris's Sonjen character and how he, kept a journal like focusing in on how is it that each player expresses themselves and thinking about that in a puzzle sense and going how can i bring this attribute that they're really focusing on and make it part of a puzzle uh like if it is journal taking or or note taking of some sort reward them for that by having the puzzle be some sort of riddles that those who have taken down good notes and like remember certain aspects of the campaign that will be helpful for them in answering that puzzle. Or if a character is a rogue and is constantly trying to manipulate and lie, having a puzzle be based around truths and lies and getting them into that type of puzzle through that mean. Yeah, uh, that reminds me of an example my in my wife's campaign, or a session that she ran for my birthday. We had, in our character creation, we, we created, she there was one phrase, one question she asked us for, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but we each answered this question, and then later there was a puzzle where we had to each identify which ring on this hand was associated with our character based on, on this one thing that we'd said. And so tied it back to that expression of our our character. And so that's a great way to do it is to, to recognize the, the effort that they've put in. Yeah. Okay. We've got, a, we've got a bit of an easier one. At least I feel like it's a little bit of an easier one and that's discovery. So discovery players, I mean, that's just, just put that stuff in there. Like you're doing, and that's a great way for just discovery in general is having the players find things in the puzzle unlocking thing literally unlocking things be it knowledge or physical items or things like that but do you have any additional advice on discovery players well discovery players love to explore right so if there's a hidden door behind that puzzle that's going to lead them into another chamber they want that right but if 
if the puzzle also is well fitted into your world and, and provides some level of lore, like if it's a, a riddle about a monster that they haven't encountered, right? That they'll be they'll be curious about that. If it's a, a puzzle that's steeped in the religion of one of the gods of your world, right? That that could really draw their interest. I'm a fan of kind of moving images. So as they solve the puzzle, they're seeing this painting of a, a battle that took place. And then if when they get the solution, they're now seeing a piece of history from your world. I remember doing that as a DM really early on where my players entered a dungeon and they kept finding a statue, like different statues depicting the same god and inscribed at the bottom was like a poem about the god. And at the end of the dungeon, they met up with a djinn who wanted to basically play a game and see if they they could answer questions about the god that the dungeon was created for. And if they remembered the little poems, they would remember the questions that were being answered. So it was like this, oh, it wasn't just random information that was given to us. There was a purpose behind it. And getting your character, your players to be like super interested in like the world that's around them and that, that you're creating, like that to me is such a cool idea. I also was thinking about, as you were talking about that, Presenting puzzles that are almost puzzles that can be walked away from and returned to once information has been gleaned and kind of like setting up this idea of like this is something throughout the journey you're looking for. You talked about like a door and wanting to get through a door. If if you come to a place that behind a door with a riddle written on it or a puzzle, you will be able to gain access to either a vault full of treasure or a different plane of existence, like that might be, that might not be the thing that it's like, oh, I'm dropping this puzzle in. And until you figure this puzzle out, you can't advance (laughs) in the story. It might be like, no, here is something that you can, you've discovered, you can return to at any point. But as you journey, remember that this is a puzzle that you're trying to work on, trying to figure out and, once you do, there is something there for you once you figure this puzzle out. Absolutely. And and the gin example you gave is just a huge payoff, right? That could be the peak for the discovery player in their engagement card oh, yeah. because you say he wants to know about these poems and they're like, I wrote them all down. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whereas everybody else is like, <laughs> I, who cares? What don't I don't care what it says. Just keep yeah. going. <laughs> that's it. That's the, kicking the, the door. Player just look yeah. at him. <laughs> See, ah, I told, I told you. you. <laughs> <laughs> so the other one, it's, and it's just baked into puzzles in general, but tailoring a puzzle to a challenge player. Uh, you know, and there's definitely varying ways that you can do that because in the whole concept and the whole conversation that we're having is throwing out all these ideas for how you need to kind of build pieces and parts to fit the players that are at your table because a challenge puzzle could just be a you know a skill challenge yeah and there could be little more to the puzzle than the skill challenge of did you pass enough succeed enough roles opposed to fail enough roles but um so I feel like it's baked in, but figuring out more of exactly how much or how little of the challenge to put in is you know, based on your players. Yeah, and, and there's some the main pitfall here is something that I encountered recently that is um, if you give a challenge a puzzle that's crafted to be a discovery puzzle, like Mitch said, 
if it's a door where you need to go find something else somewhere else in the world and that you're not supposed to solve it yet, right? Like it's connected to, to discovering something in a few months or something down the line. And you give that to a player who is deep into challenge, they might not let go. <laughs> the rest they, of the story is not as important anymore. <laughs> yeah. They might. I, so the reason this occurred to me was because I had a player, one of the teenagers in my, my Haven campaign, I gave him this, this prison and there were combination locks on, on all the prison doors, right? It's an ancient defunct prison that they found. And there was a pattern to what the, what those combinations were. But in there, in there for the discovery players, it had said to find the keys to this prison, you need to go to the ancient Dortmund capital, right? And they're, they're hidden there. And I thought, cool, discovery situation, they could, they'll move on though. Eventually, this, my real purpose was to drive them to go explore the Dortmund capital so that they would be able to find these keys. They still haven't been to the Dortmund capital, but he figured out the combinations to all these locks by brute forcing, <laughs> trying to figure out this puzzle, right? Sending me solution after solution after solution all week long, right? And so there's that danger that a puzzle becomes to a challenging a challenge player something that they refuse to give up on because that because it's challenging them so hard um challenge players also like to have the multiple possible outcomes right they, they like there to be the failure they like there to be the success but they having things in between are also good um you can make a puzzle particularly hard if if you can if there's multiple attempts available where they can say oh i think it's this uh, without it being so punishing that they, you know, all die if they mess up once on the puzzle. That's half the fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then kind of the last I, topic, uh, not topic, but player type to round out how to puzzle um, is fellowship. But um, I feel like you're in all of these kind of fold into that. That's kind of the crux of being at the table physically. And again, going back to the way you had described the puzzle where the player just got super involved and showed, you know, the fellowship of trying to figure this out, being in the game and wanting to join, help the group. I almost would love to hear yet your thoughts on it, James, because I feel like this might in my mind, this is almost one of the most challenging ways to approach a puzzle because yeah. you have, when you have a group at your table, like if you have a group of table of four players who are all challenge players, awesome, easy. I know what kind of puzzle to throw them, right? But like at my table, and I think at most tables, we have a good mixture. And so I've, I've thrown out puzzles to my players a lot. And it's like, oh, that was really successful for this person. This person hated it, but this person was like, yeah, like I, I remember placing a puzzle in front of a group and the challenge, everybody else in the group was like, oh my gosh, like tell, give us a hint. Let us like, let us figure out this puzzle already. And the challenge player was just like, no, we got to finish this, finish this by ourselves. There's a solution here. I don't care. We're getting this done. I want that. Like, yes, we figured it out ourselves. And I found it very difficult to give out puzzles with that fellowship mindset of having everyone work together and that it seemingly just works well. So is there things that you've done when introducing puzzles that have helped to bring everybody together? I agree that this one can be rough. 
At my, in my teenage group, there are at least a few players who come primarily because they know their friends will be there, right? And so fellowship is really their reason to be there. And so when a puzzle comes out, their temptation is to just start a side conversation with their friend, right? And maybe that's okay. But to try to engage them on this level, sometimes one fun thing to do, well, this is completely the opposite of what I just talked about, but <laughs> there was a player who I mean, was kind of an outcast, right, in the group where he was kind of annoying, right? And, and uh, so he would be kind of the butt of all the jokes. And so I presented a puzzle where he was in peril. His character was in peril and they had to solve the puzzle to, to save him. And that was a bonding moment with, with him as a player that had this, this good fellowship outcome. That's awesome. But the other players who, who are there just to play with their friends mostly, right? The props help. I think the most successful puzzle I've had at the teenage table was one where I had a a program that I'd written on my computer, uh, just like a web page that they had to interact with by clicking the, the different parts of the puzzle that it would move. And so just turning my computer around and handing it to the group, now they all had something to look at, right? And gather around. And so they're physically closer to each other. And then the conversation trying to solve that also brought them uh, brought them closer in this fellowship kind of way. But yeah, it's definitely a tough one. Uh, the, the key is to make sure that everyone can engage, right? If yeah. you can have multiple parts to it or parts there, if you know there's a player who, who has trouble with these kind of puzzles, something that they might know that other people don't know, particularly a shy player who, who's going to step away from a puzzle like this, you can hand them a note with a clue that no one else has. Oh, your character notices this so that they have a reason to, to step in and say, wait, guys, I have this. I have this piece of paper here. Nice. So as we wrap up this conversation, um, of course, let's just throw out, if we have any, uh, some homework, some some resources, some places for uh, our listeners to go. Uh, this discussion has been really helpful, I know, for me as a DM in how do I approach using a puzzle or like figuring out what type of player I have in front of me and what kind of puzzle will work well for them. Uh, now I'm ready to go and like get some ideas for puzzles to introduce into my game. So do we have any places for um, our listeners to go check those out? Um, any resources, any homework for them? So on my blog, mindweaverpg.wordpress.com, I do talk about puzzles quite often. And I will be posting, along with the release of this episode, uh, a discussion along the lines of what we've talked about. But I have, I have some example puzzles there. The other source that I really liked that, that got me really thinking about it was there's a, a webcomic guy named David Morganmar in Australia who wrote, wrote a regular webcomic, and his thing on puzzles is, is very good. It's irregularwebcomic.net slash 3244. And, uh, and so that's a really good source for describing how to design puzzles. And he runs an annual puzzle competition. It's really impressive. And so that you might look at some of that for some really challenging puzzles, but also his advice can be applied to, to any puzzles as far as designing the puzzles themselves. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, my homework is completely self-serving. If you want to go hear me just basically run a whole bunch of puzzles for a bunch of cool people, you can go to Trek through Undermountain, which was over on don't split the podcast network. Um, it's myself, uh, Dan Dillon, Celeste Conowich, Rich Howard, and Lisa Chin. And I just basically run them through random amalgam of Undermountain. That is a ton of puzzles. One of which was completely mundane and terrified them. Then they all gave me 
the evilest eye that you can e- you can hear through <laughs> the pure audio format. You can tell they gave me evil eyes. Uh, but definitely go check that out as a way to run some puzzles. And I would be remiss if I didn't invite everyone to join the unofficial fan Discord for the DMs block Ooh. DM banter. Yes. Do you have wait? No, Discord's terrible. We'll have a link to that in we'll have a link to the show notes as well. Show notes, yes. Because because Discord is straight <laughs> awful for linking to anyone. Yeah, oh, I could give man. you I could give you a link that that will never expire verbally, but you don't want to do that. Just look in the show notes. <laughs> yep, all those things in the show notes. Lots of great show notes for you to check out this week, especially if you are wanting, and I hope that you are after listening to this episode to give some awesome puzzles to your players and find that sweet spot that all of your players enjoy the puzzles that you give them. James, uh, before we say goodbye to you, uh, let us know if our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, follow what you're doing. You already told us um, about your website, but where can they reach you at? So I am on Twitter at, at DM underscore Eck. And I'm also very active on the DM banter discord if they have questions there i will be available to answer questions in either of those places yeah that's those are the best two places to find me thanks for coming on thank you for having me it was super exciting i did not vomit (laughs) cool uh, we made it we made it And of course, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And of course, if you liked this episode or any of the others and you see fit, head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review. We'll read it on air and you'll help us get in front of more people. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can like our Facebook page. Both of those places will have updates about the show, links to our guests that we have on and their works. It's a great place to go if you're interested in any of that. And today's Patreon shout-out goes to... Oliver Meg! And Oliver is a silver dragon, tearing it up on the forums and getting some cool stuff from Patreon. So fantastic. The Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. Check out other shows like Geek Wars, Detentions and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, and more. We just want to thank you again for listening to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of all of the other people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night and good luck. I'm DM Mitch reminding you to keep on Dungeon Mastering. It's not inspiration, it's not wisdom, and it's bad advice. Use a polygraph machine to make deception checks way more authentic. Goodbye.